Today we have with us Krista Ensley. Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited about this episode because this is the first time that we have someone from the buy side on the show, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective. Good. Well, I'm excited to share it, so thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Let's start off with your background, and then we'll kind of dive into your experience on the buy side. All right. So um, I've been in software for 25 years. It's been my my specialty since the day I stepped out of college, 18 of that running businesses, either for large uh, public companies like Sage, where we did a number of acquisitions. Um, and then, you know, over the last six years for private equity backed companies, um, the biggest part of that with Abila, where I did three acquisitions, which we'll talk about today. Got it. Fantastic. So um, which which of those companies do you want to start off with? Like, which one has the most lessons that you think would benefit business owners in the middle market? Um, I think the best thing to do is probably talk about the time at Abila. Mm-hmm. Um, it was about three and a half years being backed by private equity. Um, it was really aggressive. We did three acquisitions while we were there and three very different acquisitions for different reasons. Can we talk a little bit about the first one? And like, Absolutely. like what do you typically look for? So three different acquisitions, three different key reasons that we did this. And there's lots of different reasons a company does an acquisition. But at the end of the day, we always want them to be accretive and you know truly add value to the company. So the first one we did was a transformative acquisition. It was an acquisition that allowed us to move into an adjacent market. So one of the reasons that you do acquisitions is to actually grow your target market and the number of you know organizations out there that we can sell to. And so we were able to double our revenue our locations, our number of employees with one single acquisition that allowed us to move from just the nonprofit space into an adjacency, which we already knew pretty well, um, added about 10,000 opportunities into the association sector. So then it gave us actually two different markets to be able to leverage into. Mm, That makes sense. And how do you go about finding companies? Um, So there's lots of different ways to find companies. Um, So for us, this first one being private equity backed and because it was so transformative, um, my backers, which was the Cell KKR, um, a great team to work with, had a deal team. And they had actually brought this one to the table knowing that it was actionable which is part of the thing is you're a buyer trying to find actual acquisitions that want to be bought. It's a little bit like dating and then figuring out uh, if you're compatible and then figuring out if you actually want to get married at the end of the day. Um, But we also did something else which I thought was interesting and I would highly recommend it. Um, We built out a marketplace. So after the first acquisition we did, we had about 7,500 customers. And one of the most valuable things that I could do is I couldn't go out and buy every single product that my customers needed. So we spent about a year kind of building out a beautiful marketplace. I think it's still out there with Abila. Um, And we put about 110 different products, partnerships, implementation, and resellers inside of that. So what that allowed us to do is to really test the relationship Hmm. and to test how our customers responded to certain products that we were adding on. And that actually led us to our second acquisition. So we basically had a ground of 110 different products that we could choose from. Um, And then as we actually exited, it became a ground that the new buyers valued very, very much. Hmm. And they actually had acquired some companies out of it as well. 
how long is the process typically from you know when you decide that you want to acquire a company to when you actually find that target that you want to end oh, up buying? I don't know that there's really a, a rule there. Um, so the first one happened pretty quickly um, because they were in the market. It was an adjacency. It was a really great fit, and we were super aware of them. Um, the second one was a longer process. The second one, we added a learning management platform that we could leverage with our customers because what we discovered were associations all had some sort of learning management platform. So we had to do a lot of background and a lot of research on it. And I think it's really key that you bring the right partner in. So we did things like surveying our customers and trying to determine what they were using today, what their propensity to buy from a vendor would be, and what their propensity to replace what they had today. Um, so it was really interesting. What we found with this one is the surveys we did and talking to our customers was really invaluable. And we discovered that there actually wasn't a dominant player, which actually was good news for us. Because the second thing we discovered is that our customers told us that if we provided them a solution, they would have more of a propensity to buy from us because we already owned their back-end system. So that kind of gave us the green light to go forward. Um, we looked at the different LMS systems, learning management systems in the marketplace. Um, we had some that we were already partnering with. It happened to be one that we were partnering with. Um, they were out of Atlanta called Peach New Media. Um, had a great team, great product, great customers, and we ended up buying them. And I think that whole process probably took about 90 days. Oh, wow. That seems really quick. Yeah. You know what? I had a um, really experienced deal team behind me, so to get through diligence once you decided to go, they were very deliberate. And for someone buying a company, it's a huge competitive advantage if multiple companies want to buy them to actually be able to get due diligence done quickly. Because especially a small company, they're going to have a lot of fatigue as they go through due diligence. And you don't want to drag that out for six months or eight months. The excitement that you start with in the beginning gets old really, really quick. And then you don't want the deal to sour or to go south. So why do you think diligence typically takes longer for, you know, for most other deals? So if I, in my experience, I've seen deals sometimes take six months, nine months. Yeah, I've seen 90 days is incredible. So what is it? Is it that you guys are prioritizing certain things over others? Uh, do you just have kind of a are able to punch out diligence faster? Are there fewer diligence items? Like, what were the key areas that you guys are so looking for? So, I think for this particular one, because it was a complementary product, so kind of very niche, um, it was under a $10 million revenue product. Um, they had a great team, which was very willing to work with us very, very easily. Um, and we also had very experienced team behind us. So we were able to really quickly bring in the services that we needed. We were able to really quickly, we'd already assessed the market. We'd already knew and had worked with this company. So we were able to kind of jump a couple of those hurdles pretty quickly by the time we actually got into due diligence with them. Got it. This sounds like a, like a strategic acquisition. So you have the strategic and then you mm -hmm. kind of financial buyers, right? Absolutely. Uh, what's been your experience in the kind of difference between those two those two types of acquisitions? Um, that's a good question. So I've done both and I've been on both sides of both. Um, the interesting thing about a financial buyer 
is that they do a lot of diligence basically running off of spreadsheets. Right? Makes sense. Um, it's all about what are the growth patterns, what are your attrition rates, what's your average revenue per customer, and how is that growing, what are your constrained and unconstrained growth rates when it comes to your existing customers, what are your new bookings, what does the market look like, and what's that TAM? So really, it's very kind of consolidated into the financials of the business and the marketplace. For a strategic buyers, it's all that. However, there are other intrinsic things that you want inside the business, and you typically get a better valuation from a strategic buyer in the marketplace because there are other things that you're bringing to their company. Um, so for instance, the strategic buy with the learning management platform what they were bringing was a product that my existing customers needed. If I was just a financial buyer and buying that alone, that revenue stream wouldn't be there. Therefore, we were able to actually offer them a better price because we were able to build in more value for my customers, making my existing customers sticky, being a better partner for them, and at the end of the day, more revenue back to the company. What's the post-acquisition like integration period like? Like, how do you how do you ensure a a good transition period? Um, you know, I've thought a lot about this. So there are a lot of tactics. Um, I think the ABCs of this is you have to make sure you have a great PMO, a project manager, somebody can really track that things are getting done. You know, do we all have the same phone system so we can communicate to each other? Do we have one platform of our messaging system so we don't have six different ones where nobody can find each other? So I think there's a lot of really good tactics. If I was to back up those strategically, say the most important thing you could possibly do, I would say it's communication, communication, communication. No matter, and this has been my entire career as a business leader, no matter how often you communicate, how many different ways you communicate, you're always going to hear back from your customers, your partners, and your employees that you never communicate enough. And it boils down to people absorb communication in different ways. Some people like it written. Some people like podcasts. Some people want a video newsletter. Some people want to talk one-on-one -on -one or to see you stand up in front of them. And I think the biggest mistake you can make is not communicating your plans. Because what happens if you get in and you kind of wait to see then everyone around you is also waiting to see. And when you create uncertainty and doubt, and your employees, your customers, your prospects, and your partners can really be detrimental to your business. It's almost like hitting the pause button. So my biggest recommendation, and I know it goes a little bit against kind of human nature and maybe being able to get everything done that you need to get done right away, but I would walk in on day one knowing that person A, B, and C are going to be part of the go-forward plan person C, D, and E are not going to be part of it. And there's going to be a new structure. And somebody from my team is going to step in. I would have as much of that worked out as possible. Because the more uncertainty and doubt you bring to the table, the longer it's going to take to get an integration done, and the longer it's going to take to get traction inside that business. Yeah, yeah, that's, 
It's a really good point. Um, I actually have a guest coming on in a couple of days who specializes in uh, the human resources aspect of m and It's the biggest part. And he said that actually most M&As fail largely because of integration failure. Mm-hmm. Um, culture, communication are big ones. So I think it's going to be a really exciting episode to, to listen to as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll catch on. Um, what are some of the red flags that uh, could kill a deal? Oh, so a red flag that would kill a deal. A red flag that would kill a deal for me, there's probably two. Um, I would say the first one really goes to culture. Is there not a cultural fit? Is there a management team that doesn't want to do this? Are we going against the grain? It's kind of like trying to integrate you know, two families and you don't get along with your in-laws. Can you live with that or not? Or do you have to make a different decision? Secondly, and probably almost more important, and I think this goes both for strategic and financial buyers, is what kind of relationships do they have with their customers? And something that could kill a deal is having unhappy, unsatisfied customers or high attrition. Because when you think about buying an organization, today a lot of value is put on recurring revenue. A lot of value is putting on growing the customer base. And a lot of value is simply put on how can we go back and expand into those customers. It's your lowest hanging fruit. Um, It's shocking to me how many organizations I see that do not have an account management team. It's the first thing I recommend when I talk with someone or when I go into a new organization or when I'm on a board is you really have to focus on those customers and walking into a situation where customers are leaving or they're unhappy, where you don't think you can turn that around and it's gonna be detrimental is something that would definitely kill a deal for me. Good culture and good and happy customers. That sounds like it's a very common theme, like happy people. Right? Happy people. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. And, you know, that's obviously my lens. Yeah. Um, I think happy people, if you have the right, best, brightest people that want to work with you, that translates into happy customers and that translates into profitability. And I've experienced that in spades. And I kind of love that formula because it allows you to focus on, I think, the right things and not just running an organization off of the PL at the end of the day. So if I was positioning a company for sale, I think there's a couple things I would recommend. One, we talked about the due diligence period being very long and can be fatigued, is I would make sure that I knew my business. You know, your books have to be clean. You need to understand what your attrition rates are, what your bookings are, what your recurring revenue is, and what your pace of growth is, and what your market is. Those are kind of the ABCs. And it's really surprising, especially if you have an organization that maybe has a couple acquisitions, and how maybe the books aren't really that clean, or the systems haven't been integrated, or you just can't answer those really basic questions. So that's the first thing I would say, just to make it easier on the seller. Because due diligence is going to dig into that, and they're going to dig, and they're going to dig, and they're going to dig, and they're going to take all the time that you are willing to give them to answer all those questions. The second thing I would say is understand kind of where you want to go or what you want to do as far as your exit. So um, in the case of a learning management platform, they actually knew that they wanted to exit and that they wanted to exit into a strategic, which made perfect sense for that product. So they were actually able to build relationships 
with multiple strategics. They were able to have super happy customers that crossed. They were able to build strong integrations. So it was really a natural fit for us when we went to look for someone. It's kind of like we already knew them. They were already part of the family. They'd already positioned themselves in a really bright light for us. And so it made a lot of sense. What about the other two companies? Were, were they as prepared for an acquisition as the LMS, as the learning management system was? Um, the first one was um, a large acquisition. It was um, had about $30 million in revenue. Um, so it wasn't the sub-10, which makes it a little simpler. Um, I don't know that they were necessarily as prepared. Um, they had been positioning themselves for an exit, they had brought in a new CEO and a CFO to really um, move their expenses around so they were able to really drive new revenue. They were really focusing on the recurring revenue. They were really focusing on their customers. They were reducing things um, that necessarily didn't get large multiples like the services part of their business and simply outsourcing that to partners. So they had positioned themselves kind of in a, a different way and a little bit of that being a $30 million company, they weren't certain if they were going to sell to a strategic or if they were going to be selling to a financial buyer. And I think they were probably previously expecting to sell to more of a financial buyer as a standalone, but they ended up selling to a strategic with a financial backer. I'm curious, was the due diligence period around 90 days as well, or was it a little longer? Um that one we started it was it really was about 90 days that was That's a, incredible that was a pretty quick <laughs> one i tell you i had some pretty good experts behind me that yeah. knew what they were doing yeah and they really pride themselves on their competitive advantage as a buyer uh-huh. is to get to the finish line yeah and be incredibly um purposeful in what they do and what they ask for in light of that what advice would you have to business owners due diligencing the uh, potential buyer of their company? Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, so what advice about the potential buyer? So I would, I would do a couple things. Um, I would first want to understand kind of the values um, because I think a lot of things start there. Um, and I think that's probably... You know, firms can say whatever they want to say, and they can put on their website whatever they want to put on their website, but it's really up to you to speak with the key players and the partners. It's really up to you to probably even more importantly, back channel other organizations that they've worked with, because that's where you're really going to get the true story. Um, it's amazing how often you meet somebody, and you know this happens in everyday life, that you think, oh my God, that's the nicest person I ever met. Well, they're the salesperson at Nordstrom. Of course they're really nice. <laughs> they don't want to be your friend. They're trying to make a sale. And I think those real basic principles, we have to think about it, because it's really in competitive market right now to buy companies, and everyone is going to put their best foot forward. So I just recommend, although most of them are amazing, is that don't take everything at face value and really make sure they're a partner that aligns with you. So for instance, if you want your company to grow and your customers are paramount to you and those relationships with your employees are really important, then you obviously wanna find a buyer that's a growth buyer 
and has a track record of that, not somebody who is a cash flow buyer that simply wants to take distributions out of the business or wants to run the business, you know, for a, for a bottom line. And there's different reasons that people buy, different ways to create value, and you just need to make sure you're aligned with that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. You spoke really highly about the the deal team that you were working yeah. with. Um, what were some of the roles that um, were on that team? Um, so when I first started working with them, um, I was really clear kind of about where their role was and where mine was. I'm an operational CEO. I can assess the support team and the services team and the operations team and the development team and the sales team all day long. Where I needed a deal team to step in was around things like legal, detailed financial diligence. That's not something is a good use of anybody's time on my team to sit and do. Um, there were some consultants that we brought in to kind of help set up the strategic integration for us. Um, and they had some really good financial resources who were able to kind of take the ball and run with it and take some of that pressure off my finance team. Because one of the hardest things is to run a company at the same time you're trying to do diligence, same time you're trying to buy a company. And this is the same as if you're selling. And how do you kind of divide up your day job, take care of your employees, your customers, and your partners at the same time that you're trying to either buy, sell, and go through diligence, which can be a full-time job as well. So for me, it was always really, really important to make sure I had the right experts at the table. Um, so we had legal teams that we had worked with multiple times. So they understood, you know, how to do a couple things for us. One was simple legal diligence. You know, are the contracts written away that we can assign those and they make sense? Um, are there any outstanding trademark issues? Are there any outstanding issues around, you know, legal filings or other things that we need to understand? Um, same thing for tax. That's something you don't want to do in-house, but there's a lot of good legal experts out there that can certainly help with that. Um, and then dividing up a lot of those tasks kind of inside your existing team for two reasons. One, simply dividing and conquering. Um, I'm a big fan of delegating. But the second reason to do it is you want your internal team to be part of it. You want them to own that. So for instance, um, a VP of development, if he's going to be taking over a team and needs to own a product, you want him to love it and believe in it before it lands in his lap. So we would bring in experts. Um, there's a company called Black Duck that we would do security scans. And they would basically, you know, look at the software, make sure it was as solid as it needed to be, make sure there weren't any security violations and other things. But I would put that in my VP of development's hands to own that, to run that, and to report back. And that was always really critical to me. Yeah. No, that's, that sounds fundamental to running a good process is having good people. It sounds like that's a common, common theme, good yes, people. Yes, good people. I always start with good people. Um, you know, my, my company was the best company to work for in Austin five years in a row. Incredible. And yeah, I just it always starts with the right people for me. As a business owner who's looking to sell their company, there's different types of offers that they're likely to be presented with. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the trade-offs they should consider when being presented with different types of offers, like an all-cash offer, a stock swap, an earnout? Kind of, what's your experience in that? 
Um, so I think the first thing, and um, you know, AKKR or my PE backers or GPB, whoever I happen to be working with, really put the kind of the the details of deals together. Um, but inside the business, um, I've experienced a couple different um, options. I personally am not a huge fan of earnouts. Um, you know, a company I'm on a board with is doing this right now, and I kind of said, you know, you need to think through everything. And here's the reason. Um, and maybe it's just my lens, and maybe I just didn't have a great experience with it. What I find, so an earnout is a way to kind of kick some of the value down the road and make sure you're going to be successful and make sure you have the right team in place. What I've experienced happens is you have to craft an earnout um, very, very thoughtfully. Because if you have an owner, a founder, a current management team, a current CEO, who is going to continue to run that business? And their earnout is based on, let's say, a bookings number or a revenue number at the end of the day. You have to be very cautious that all the things that they did day to day that made that company great and made you really want to buy it doesn't get shifted to one focus because now they have a million dollars on the line or $5 million on the line. And I think you also have to really consider what happens if I get six months into a year earnout and we decide that we just don't work together very well <laughs> or this is not a match made in heaven and you'd like for them to go earlier. What do you do then? And I've seen this happen twice and you either have to be willing to go ahead and pay them they have to be willing to not take their earn out or you suffer for another six months. And, you know, think about a founder who gets probably a large check because you've bought their company. You've now asked them to stay. You've put more money on the line. Human nature just kicks in. And, you know, I think it's somewhat unusual to have someone who stays 100% focused doing all the things that they did prior to the acquisition because it's a new time, it's a new world, and they're being incentivized in a new way. Do you have a preferred structure that, that you think works you know, best most of the time? <sighs> you know, I've, I've seen quite a few different structures. Um, I do think it's important to keep continuity in the business. Um, so you don't always want to, if you've got a great founder who's doing great things, you don't want to rip them out of the business on day one either. Um, I think an, an earnout can work. Um, I think it just has to be incredibly thoughtful around what the incentives are. And just a pure cash incentive at the end of the day for staying for 12 months isn't that thoughtful. And, you know, it really just has to do with, and I don't think there's a really straight answer here. We'd all be doing it. Um, but I do, you know, I do believe, you know, when I'm sitting in that seat or on the board of someone doing this, that I really kind of push people to kind of think through what do they actually want out of that person that they've asked to stay? Is it long term? Is it 12 months? Is it continuity? Is it to drive the next biggest deal? And just to make sure we're all aligned. Let's think about that question from the other side of the, okay. of the table. And this is a question that I actually asks, ask each one of my guests, and that is, when is the right time to sell? 
When is the right time to sell? There are so many factors. <laughs> um, there are huge external factors. I mean, right now, people are thinking about the election coming up and what's going to happen to capital and what's going to happen if the White House shifts and what's going to happen if funding gets shifted from one area to another. What happens if one sector is all of a sudden the hottest sector out there and another sector isn't getting funding any longer? So that's one thing to consider. Um, I don't necessarily put a ton of weight on that. Um, And really the reason being is that there's a lot of activity There are more private equity firms now today than there ever has been. There's more strategic buyers backed by private equity firms. Um, And, you know, as a CEO, I was consistently every single week, potentially every day, getting private equity firms coming to me because they have deal teams. This is what they do. Saying, you know, would you like to talk? Let's build a relationship. So I don't think the demand is going to go down just because the macroeconomic shift. But it is something that's giving people, I think, a pause right now. Um, The second thing I would think about as far as the right time is, is the company positioned to kind of maximize your exit? So um, I'm sure that you have talked about the rule of 40 in this room before, right? Um, a little bit, but why, little. Don't we re- why don't we remind our guests? Okay. Um, so the rule of 40, and depending on who exactly you're working with, some will say the rule of 50, is the addition of your annual growth plus your EBITDA margin. So it's a belief that you maximize the value of your company when that totals 40. So it could be an organization that's growing at 40% a year, but it's basically break even. That's a very, very high value company. It's also maximized if you have a company that let's say is a larger company, maybe it's you know 70 to 80% recurring revenue and growth is a little harder in the marketplace um, you know accounting really mission critical kind of back end software maybe you're getting 10% growth but you're really able to leverage that revenue and get 30% on the bottom line that actually matches the rule of 40 as well and that is a high value organization so you know kind of in the marketplace it's known as a CEO that you know, always, always looking for a great exit or a great buy, that the rule of 40 is really where you kind of maximize that. Got it. What about more like personal motivations? Personal motivations. Oh, isn't that specific to everybody? <laughs> I, I guess it is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, a mid-market CEO, um, not a VC, not a founder. So I can't really sit in a seat from a founder perspective and say, you know what, I built this and now it's time to let my baby go. Um, I did build an organization over about a decade, and when I let it go, there were literally tears. It was a hard thing for me to do, um, you know. And I, I built it from being part of a large multi-billion-dollar company as a small division to taking on private backers and then letting it go. And so there were a couple divestitures there. One I went with, one I didn't. Um, and I think the timing was different for each. Um, the first time we divested it and carved it out, the timing was all about, you know, being able to maximize that resource outside the company instead of inside the company when I was with Sage. Um, I think the second time 
that we sold it to community brands. We had a great exit. We had had tremendous growth over about three and a half years. And at that point, you know, the motivation really was the market had had a lot of trading going on in the nonprofit and association sector. So there was, you know, um, multiples were fairly high at that point. There was a lot of interest from organizations like community brands who were doing consolidation and roll up. So the market was right. We felt to maximize the timing of that. The organization was also growing at a nice clip. We also had really nice profitability. So it had a lot of the characteristics that said, you know what, this is probably the time. There's also, and I think it's real important for people to understand because we hear a lot about great exits. We don't hear about, I went to process and it didn't work. And I went to process and it, those all happen kind of behind the curtain. But this happened all the time. You can go and think you're gonna sell your company and not get the results that you wanted and go back to the drawing board and keep running your company even longer. Because maybe today isn't the day, but maybe in 12 months something will change or maybe you get feedback during that process and take that feedback to heart, make some of those changes and then go back out. And I've seen that happen a couple of times as well. Some of our prior guests have talked about the concept of leverage in a deal. Um, as this is as a business owner looking to sell their company, and so one of those options was, um, you know, having like a, a convertible note that basically extends the runway of the company to give them more options to find other buyers. But you have a really interesting role because you're kind of a strategic CEO that's, that's right. brought into companies. One of the prior guests we had mentioned that um, a lot of companies don't actually want to sell they run into situations where they're just limited on growth potential right. from the internal resources that they have. Why, in what circumstances should maybe a company consider bringing on an external CEO rather than trying to drive an exit immediately? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Because to be sitting in a founder seat and to recognize the fact that I went as far as I can go and I need somebody to come in and professionalize the company, operationalize it, maximize it, and then kind of get ready. And I think that's what you're kind of asking here. Um, that's kind of a big leap, I think, for a lot of founders. But I think there's a lot of really smart founders out there that recognize that. What I see actually happen more often is having a investor come in and maybe it's not even a, um, a majority investor and want to further operationalize the company. And that's where a lot of organizations bring someone in like me where they said, you know, we did a carve out or we bought from a founder and we really think there's a lot more leverage inside this organization. But certain people have, you know, their limitations. And I'm not a founder. I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm not going to take something from zero to 20 million. I can take something from 20 million to 100 million once we get to a place where we can really start to operationalize that. So, you know, when I look at that, I think it's just always about having the right people in the right role at the right timing. It's never really the wrong person. It just depends on kind of what you do really well and recognizing that. Yeah. And I think founders, um, and my husband runs small businesses and has been a founder, and I think it's actually just being able to recognize at a certain place in time 
that maybe it would be better off in somebody else's hands. Yeah, sounds like having a certain level of uh, self-awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. Self-awareness is incredibly important. What last piece of advice would you leave us with for business owners looking to to sell their company? Um, I think I have to go back to happy people, happy customers, make sure you network. Um, there's every PE firm out there would love to talk to them. <laughs> um, don't be shy about that. Um, don't be shy about asking for introductions throughout your network. And it doesn't mean that you're taking an action. It just means you're getting to learn and getting to know the players that are out there. So when you are ready to make a move, you can have a good conversation and you can really pick the right player to move forward with. That's great advice. Krista, thank you so much for your time today. You are very welcome. This was great.